And yes, layered butter. How wrong is it for you, but how good is it? Anyways, if I see any of you get up and leave and you're longer than a washroom break should take, I will ask you later. And I'll smell your breath. I will know if you went with the kids. 2,500 years ago, an ancient Bible prophet by the name of Jeremiah said this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. You know, I looked at that verse. I said, you know, that, that's a pretty hard verse to argue with. Basically saying, find a good path in life and one that leads rest for the soul. The problem is, as I continue to observe my life, my family's life, co-workers, people around, that we got this just a little bit confused. Our pursuit of the good life, as I observe our culture, has led to often a chaotic, a rushed, an anxious, an unfulfilled way. And instead of walking and resting in the time that we find in the scriptures, it seems like we're just always running as fast as we can. And a lot of times, we don't even know where we're running. There's not even an end in sight. You know, it's like we're on this, this gerbil circle that just goes round and round, and we're flying as fast as we can. And so I ask myself, so what went wrong? What, what happened here? And here's a guess. It's my guess. I think what happened here is we replaced the end goal. See, notice Jeremiah doesn't say, find the good way so that you'll succeed more, so that you'll achieve more, that you'll have more or acquire more. No, no, no. He says, do this so that you find rest for your soul. How important is that? Find the good way. And yet recent surveys, as we continue to look around this world of ours, indicate that there is a significant amount of us that continue to have what they call stress and anxiety and concern and worry. And you know, and this is in light of all the technological advancements that we're supposed to what? Make life easier for us. Less stressed up. But it's not happening. It's just not happening. We haven't been able to simplify life in a sense. We've complicated it. And so we feel often overwhelmed when I talk to people. They feel overextended. They feel kind of maxed out, stretched to the le limit. They're left wondering, well, what do I got to do? And that's why sometimes when you have these people that come along, whether it's these seminars and Tony Robbins or whoever, Tim Robbins, some, some Robin guy. You know, they come along and they begin to offer a way to simplify our lives, to get a grip, to get some control. We, we pay attention. We say, I, I can resonate with that. And so in light of this, here's what I want to challenge us this morning. And I want to challenge us to a quest for a simpler life that leads to a rested soul. And the challenge is, is we can't just keep blaming the drivenness around us or our busyness or these outside circumstances that keep putting us in the same predicament, these outside forces. We just can't keep blaming that. So here's the deal. We need to come to a place where we stop simply looking for someone or something to blame for our pace of life. Because the reality is, especially in our culture and our time, in this day and age, most of us just can't simply say, I'm going to slow down. Because there's so much around us that we're not in control of. 
And I'm aware of that all the time. So the real problem of my busyness and my drivenness really comes down to choices that I have to make. The real problem lies outside of just the circumstances, but what's going on inside my heart and what I'm doing. See, it's really interesting. I'm just going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but lately I've been uh, in tune with, I don't know if you've ever heard of the TED Talks, and they're guys who do professional talks in certain areas, and some very fascinating things. But someone led me to a, a, one of the talks called Heart Math. And I'm, I'm watching this based on scientific discoveries in the last number of years. And all it ever does is confirm to me what the scriptures and God already told us thousands of years ago. What God hardwired into us. And so advancements in science only confirm sometimes what God warned about what could happen with our hearts. And so new studies, and I'll quickly summarize it, are surrounding the intelligence, they say now, of the heart. It's a lot smarter than we thought it was. Basically, they, they say things like, you know, the core of who you are, your authentic self, your, your source of wisdom, your intuitiveness, the birthplace of emotions and love and care. You know, they really do come from the heart. It's not just a good picture. And they say there's even science behind this. And so they've discovered that the heart actually sends powerful commands to the brain. It sends more than it receives. There's a neurological connection between your heart and your brain. In fact, in 1983, they said, man, we got to reclassify this thing called the heart. Simply because we now discovered it actually even produces something in our bodies that deal with stress in our life. And they go, the heart is an electric heart. It produces by far the strongest source of bioelectricity in our bodies, more than the brain. That we're accustomed to our brain being a bunch of these neurological messages being sent, but the heart produces 30 to 40, 40 sorry, to 60 times more. And, and they say it affects every aspect of our body, every cell. They say they can even measure five feet outside of your body, this biomagnetic field. And here's the part that I just found so intriguing. They started saying, you know what, if someone is angry, if someone is tense, if someone is frustrated or just a bitter person, what they've determined and seen is that that magnetic field around them that we emulate through our entire body and then out into space is actually very chaotic. It's very incoherent. But if a person is driven by a peace by a calmness, by love, by just all around being a good person, that there's a coherence to that magnetic field. They brought a lady on stage. They said they, they map out the heart rhythm now. We can actually measure live the graph. And so what they do, it's based on science and all this kind of stuff. But they bring a lady on stage. They, they hook her up to a computer. The graph comes up on the computer. And, and then they sit there and say, okay, so he says, uh, how do you feel about singing in front of large crowds? <laughs> and the graph is all stagnated all over the place. He said, I'm not going to get you to sing. Here's what I want you to do. Close your eyes. Think of a happy place. <laughs> We've all been there, right? Take that happy pill. Think of someone that loves you. Think of something calm and relaxing. And immediately her graph, her heart rhythm, just goes into this flow. And they look at this, and they're measuring it and the effectiveness, and they take it all over. They even got monitors around the world measuring the magnetic field of the globe, trying to see if, if events like 9-11, where there's chaos and fear driven by an event, does it affect the magnetic field of the world? And so they're, they're taking this, but I'm looking at all of this, and, 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 and a verse comes to mind. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, 
It is the wellspring of life. See, their quote, all our thoughts, prayers, feelings, intents, intentions, motions, they are, they're more real than we ever believed before. So that's why this morning I want us to focus and, and, and look at what, what does it really mean when the scripture talks about having a simplified and a guarded heart. You know, a heart that's uncluttered and, and focused as God intended on the important things of life versus what we tend to create within our own lives based often on circumstances and events around us. And so I'm going to go back to a verse that I actually referenced last time I was here. We typically hear it at a funeral, but it's a verse that was you know, created more for the living than for the dying, Psalms 23. I want you to do me a favor. Close your eyes right now. I'll tell you when you can open them. I'm not going to do a magic act and disappear as much as some of you may want, but I just want you to close your eyes. I want you to focus. I want you to hear these words one more time. Focus on what it's saying. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Please open your eyes. I look at this verse sometimes and I go, and it's a, it's, it's sometimes it's a great verse, but, but it's out there. It's great to quote. It's great to kind of turn to, but to experience, to know that I'm living in that place right now, a lot of us are going, I'm, I'm not there. And I'm thinking, do, do Glenn, do you truly desire a good way? A soul satisfying, a restful soul, satisfying way, then we have to look closely at what God promises in the scriptures. And this verse gives us so many clues as to how we can reach a state of heart that God intended, one that is impacting every cell of our body as our hearts come to rest in peace in him. Regardless of the circumstances around us, a state of heart that is simplified from the mess that we typically find ourselves in. And yes, there'll be less country theme songs to sing about. But you will find your place and you will find a place where your soul has been longing for. So four truths I want to bring out from Psalm 23. Very first truth, a simplified heart starts with the awareness that I have a soul. David began, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And then there's that phrase, he restores my soul. I'm going to make somewhat of a rather bold statement, but my guess is, is that probably what's true of most of us for most of the time that we exist as we do life is that we give less thought or sometimes little thought to the fact that I have a soul. Because we're so wrapped up with the thought that I have a body. 
a physical body that the world continually tells me what it has to look like. And so what I find, and we see it in our kids, and it drives you nuts, and you try to tell them and pass it on, but you see this drivenness and this attention and this time given all this energy to what the body looks like and so much considerably less time to the soul. So you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2, where God created, and we read, and the Lord God created man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And we go, well, what does that mean? What is a soul? What does a soul look like? Well, understandably, it's that invisible part of us. It's that eternal part of you and I. That, that part of us that God connects with, that separates us from everything else that is created. In fact, the Bible describes it like this. The soul is the real you. The body is nothing more than the container. Now, I love animals. <coughs> Excuse me, I really do. There's a huge difference, though, between humans and animals. All right? Animals should never take priority over humans. For that very reason, we have souls. Think about it. Your body is nothing more than a glorified Tupperware. That's what it is. It's simply created to hold something that's really important. I can lose a part of my body. My soul remains unchanged. I can have an organ transplant, but your soul remains the same. You are defined by your soul, not by your physical looks. And yet I look at the world and I think of the money that is generated and created by design world and fashion world and industry and the fitness and the craze even for plastic surgery. My goodness, there's huge amounts of people now giving their 16-year-old daughters gifts of plastic surgery. And I'm saying, what are we telling our kids? What are we creating in the mindset of our culture? It's this craze that this is what counts, the Tupperware. But Jesus said, no, one day he made an interesting observation about this in Matthew 16. And he said, what good will it be if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for a soul? He's painting this picture. You know, on one side is the asset column where he says, you know, put your whole world you know, your house and your properties, your car, your boat, your vacations, you know, everything, your assets, you put them all there, your reputation before the community, your career, your stock portfolio, all the things that we tend to somehow bring into a conversation to establish who I am, how good I am, right? But then in the loss column, the liability column, there's the, there's the entry that says your soul, net loss. Jesus is saying the single most valuable thing you have in your possession is, without question, your soul. And yet we give little attention to it. In the same way that you have come to learn to tend and care for your physical body, which I know is important. We don't want to be stupid about that. But we pay such little attention to our soul. You know, I, I thought, it's like our garages. You know, we build a garage in a house. I built a big double garage in our house so that I can have a place to park my car. Well, what happens over time? How many of you cannot park your car in your garages? I can't at this moment. In fact, you would puncture every single tire. You would go by going in there, right? Life begins to clutter. And the world is filling us with stuff. And soon boxes and everything else begins to fill that garage until the whole purpose of the garage has been lost. Well, the same is true with your soul. 
God built. He created a soul for you and I that we could come to know him and be in relationship with him. But the tragedy is that over time, many of us have focused on so many other things that we fill our lives and we fill our hearts with so many things and so much noise. And whether it's bitterness and anger or unforgiveness or just busyness and clutterness and things that we think are important, so much activity that we've pushed God out. There's no room. There's no room even really to know him. A spiritually healthy life is impossible in a soul that doesn't have room to meet with God. So the first thing you need to think loud and clear this morning is you've got a soul. Whether you think about it, whether you're aware of it, you have a soul. And to have a simplified life, first step, you've got to understand that soul needs attention. Secondly, a simplified heart means finding my identity in Christ. David begins with those famous words, the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. No one else. The Lord is my shepherd. See, my soul has to anchor in that identity. My relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I believe every single one of us here as a human being has this insatiable hunger for love and for acceptance and for belonging and for approval. We always are looking for those things. And so many times we are driven by this if we can recognize it in others. And so we're driven by what people say. Because it's so important to feel apart and accepted. And we see it in those of us who are so eager to be drawn to the voices around us that we will do stupid things on this earth. Because I so much want to be a part of hearing that I'm accepted. And so we hear things like you've got to earn it and you've got to prove it and you've got to do something important in this life to make sure that you have that behind you to be accepted. Then you're valuable, and yet we know at the very same time God is whispering in our ears, will you rest in me? I'm your shepherd. You don't have to prove anything. Let me love you. I love you just as you are, and I want to see you grow in me. You know, if we're being honest today, most of us would have to say that's not the identity that drives us. In fact, most of us, what begins to happen is that we believe The world and soon our activity becomes synonymous with our identity. Pretty soon, that's where we begin to find all our value and worth. And so we work harder and we try harder to feel better about ourselves. And soon we become, they say, a prisoner of our own self-deception. Because that's the only thing that motivates us when we get up in the morning. And what begins to happen is inside our heart, there's this love-hate relationship, that tension that's beginning. We hate the pressure. We hate the busyness. We hate the drivenness. But on the other side, we love feeling that we're in demand. I'm your worst case scenario. You don't have to talk to me very long and you find out how hard I'm working. I hear myself saying it and I want to say, Glenn, will you stop? And so I walk around. I love coming to the job site and being the hero. Being the one that will work throughout the nights. Seven days a week. And I ask myself, why is that? Why is that so important to me? Well, part of it is my security and my identity is not in Jesus Christ. It's improving myself to people around me. So what happened to me in ministry when I was pastoring. You know, the humor of growing up all the time is, what does a pastor do all week? He works one day. Right? It was humorous. We laughed at it. But you know what? Inside... You know, I stood here this morning. I came real early. I stood at the pillar, right out those doors. 
I looked at John's old yard. I know he's gone now. I can tell he's gone. The yard's nowhere near what John did. I was 27. I was candidating. I looked at that community right from that pillar and remember asking myself, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And now I look at this life. It's like over 20-something years have passed. And I'm looking at what I did in the pastoring. And I recognize how this came into my ministry. That I had to come in and prove to people that pastors are hardworking. In fact, I still remember some of you on the board telling me you have to take some time off after you've just had surgery and you've been split open. Oh, no, I'll be back. I can crawl. I can be here. Right? And let's, let's face it, my German friends, those of you who are German, you like hard workers. You are hard workers. And I was going to resonate with that. You know, I still remember driving again to the Deerfoot, and we're going to the church office, and my kids in the back seat were much younger, and they asked, where are we going, Daddy? I'm sure it was a Saturday, and I said, oh, to church. And I still remember my oldest son. I don't know how old he was. All I could hear under his breath was, I hate church. I hate church. You see, I chose to believe a lie, and I still do that I find my identity in the approval of just what you think instead of Christ. I've got to get to a place where my identity is not wrapped up just in my activity, in my ministry. And yes, there's responsibility and all these things. I know that comes into play, but you know what we're like. And we have this belief behind this addiction. <laughs> Here is my belief. Work hard, Glenn. Be responsible. Succeed, and people will love you. And then I transfer that to God. And I think, Glenn, work hard. Be responsible and God will love you. Phil Anderson has written a book called Running on Empty. And the subtitle is Spirituality for Overachievers. Here's what he says. I became an out-of-control work addict. I lived in the illusion that unless I was making it happen, nothing was happening. Not only was my life shaped by an incorrect view of a too small God but an equally incorrect view of a too big me made matters worse. Once firmly planted, my mistaken views made arrogance second nature, my life dangerously active. The truth that God could love me just as I was without my doing a thing for him seemed too good to be true. And yet I turn to the scriptures in 1 John 3, 1, and I read, See how very much our Heavenly Father loves us, for he allows us to be called his children. And we really are. There's no language of performance or achievement. And when you and I grasp this, when we really get it, when we can understand just how much God is pursuing us and loves us and how accepted we stand in his presence, when we grasp how much God brings us into his family and adopts us as his children, when we really get that, guess what happens? The clutches of approval addiction from everyone else begins to loosen. And we begin to walk in freedom. Galatians 4, 7. Now you're no longer a slave, but God's own child. Since you are his child, everything he has belongs to you. It's there. It's for you. Quit pursuing everything else around you. So the question becomes, can you and I begin to tune out those fickle voices that we often hear around us and really begin to believe what God promised and said is true and where our identity truly lies in? Can we really believe that? 
I believe that somewhere along this journey, every Christ follower has to answer a very difficult question. And the question is, is Jesus enough? We are, oh yeah, oh yeah. Now I'm going to go work 140 hours this week and right through the week and Sunday and everything. Is Jesus enough? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So did you pray about that fight? No, 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 I'm going to get this thing. I'm just, you know, I'm going to handle this. Is Jesus enough? Oh, yeah, that addiction problem you got. You talk to anyone about it? Oh, no, no, I got this thing. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. See, it's my relationship with God that will define who I am and gives me my identity. So here's the good news. When you really begin to grasp that and get that, all of a sudden, yes, you begin to set free and get liberated. In fact, notice what it says in Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. And so what's the result of me understanding that concept? I shall not be in want. That's the result. In in other words, I'm content with who I am, what I have, whatever the circumstances. I was working on this message last Sunday as I'm toiling and working on this job where I'm the hero, by the way. I'm the hero at this job. If I haven't told you, I most likely will at some point. Okay? And I come in there, and I'm I'm reading this scripture after a hard week, and and the Lord kind of just draws my attention. It's in Ecclesiastes. And, 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 you know, it's, it's fascinating. And it said, and I saw that... All labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. <laughs> I stop right there and go, isn't that the truth? Everything we do, oh, I'd like one of those. Right? We're born, family, raised in a nice house. I want a nice house. I want this. I want that. Look, he drives that. I want to drive that. Everything we do, driven by envy. And then he says, this too was meaningless, a chasing after wind. And then this one got, got me. Better one handful, handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. And chasing after the wind. In other words, just, you know, even if we just had one hand where we could rest in God and be at peace, and the control is not in our hand, it's in His. Do you really believe Jesus is enough? Then, Glenn, what are your hands full of? Most of the time, tools. I have an old guy in the church that every time at Brentview, he shakes my hand. First thing he does is looks at how many calluses I have and then tells me I'm working too hard. Are they full of tools or are they ever folded in prayer and just resting or in open worship? Life is not about me. It's not about you. You don't have an agenda and a calendar, you know, like me. If I only had eight days a week, I could get so much more done. You have a soul. That's what you need to know. And you have an identity in the person of Christ, in a relationship with him. But let me give you another lesson that we need to learn. And that's thirdly, a simplified heart means, means feeding and nurturing my soul. See, I, I just can't be aware that I've got some spirituality to me that so many of us in this day and age are happy with and content. Had someone here sitting in one of my messages in this church when I was here a little while ago, never really been to church. Asked them afterwards, so oh, it was really good, really good. You know what? I, you know, me and God, we got our own thing going. In other words, he just defining it for himself. I go, that's fine, that's fine. We'll talk, you know, more and more. See, it's not just to say, hey, I'm a soul, I'm spiritual. And, hey, that's good enough. Let's go back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. In that second verse, there are hints about what it looks like and feels like to look like and to nurture your soul. If you're going to have a healthy soul, you're going to slow down. 
There's going to be time to be quiet and to be still. Listen to Psalm 37, 7. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. Be still. Be quiet. Because it is in those moments when we let go of life that we know that He creates the room to talk. And I think sometimes for some of us, there's nothing harder in the entire world, especially for us adrenaline junkies, is just to slow down. And in this world of iPads and Blackberries and, and Facebook accounts, and you know, my kids are posting things that are happening at that moment, and people around the world already know. I haven't even left the event. They already know what's all going on, and everyone's upkeeping it. And, and I'm looking at that. We're just creating more time stealers. Things that just that are good in themselves but have the potential to destroy our time and our soul development. And so I simply want to challenge us this morning is that we have to. I've heard it since I was a kid. I was in church probably days after I was born. I've been there my whole life and I've heard it constantly. But we've got to create those habits. If you want a healthy soul, you've got to have that healthy time alone with God. It just has to happen. I don't care if it's 5, 10, 15 minutes. You know, I'll be honest, it, it, it's hard. You think you're a pastor. Well, it's easy when i got to write a sermon. I have to. That's why I love preaching, because it, in a sense it forces me. You go, that's a terrible thing to say. Well, I'm sorry, it's the truth. But when I'm in the workforce, you know, I told someone just last week in an accountability meeting, he says, oh my goodness, i got to find some more time. You know what? I hardly take lunch breaks. You know, these guys are on the clock, they take their half hour, your half hour. I take whatever it takes to get in and I get going. Why am I going to sit there and do what? Right? So all of a sudden God says, well, here's what you can do. You got the Bible on your phone. Open it up. Take 10 minutes. Read a verse. And I said, that's a great idea. You know how many times I did that this week? Zero. It's not as easy as you think. I honestly totally forgot. Why? Because toiling with two hands and two feet. Well, everyone else are slackers. So I'm still trying to prove something. I don't know what. I want to get the job done. But I'm losing out. So God again says, okay, you got another week to try to get a little better. I don't care how long it is. Well, George Mueller said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord, how my inner man might be nourished. And as we strive to follow Christ, do we create or give any time? I, I just know typically we don't. What air and water, you know, in a sense, is to our physical body, time alone with God is to our soul. It just is. And it's not going to happen by accident. And it's not going to happen just by saying, that's it, I'm going to quit. I'm going to only six hours a day. And, you know, I get home and what do I got? More work to do at home. Other things to accomplish, people to see. What happens at the end of the day? Oh, I didn't even crack open the scriptures again. And I'm going, it just happens. So that's not going to change. We're always going to have that around us. What's going to change is my drivenness to make sure it's a priority, to put it right in. You know, there's a reason the scriptures you know, tell us about the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath literally in Hebrew means to cease, <laughs> to cease. Back in the very beginning, we understand the Bible says God created for six days and then he ceased. What did he do in the seventh? He rested. Why did he do that? Well, he established a rhythm of life. 
a rhythm of life that was to be emulated by us. In fact, you know, it's funny, you know, they have the, the Ten Commandments and all those things in Exodus 20, you know, right there, we're not murdering and committing adultery and lying and all the big ones, and right there, remember, to observe the Sabbath. Keep it holy six days a week, set apart for your daily duties and to work. But the seventh day is of a rest dedicated to the Lord your God. And we've lost that many times. Why is it important? The rhythm of life that we create in our hearts for our soul. You know, all week long I hear distorted messages and lies and I see it on the television and I hear it from people at work and I just see it seep into me. There's got to be these times, these moments, we step back, we get back into truth (laughs) on a daily habit, but especially on the Sabbath. And fourthly, a simplified heart results in enjoying life at its best. See, this isn't, I'm not talking about just giving up things to get this simplified life. But go back to Psalm 23. David says, my identity is in Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want, right? I can be satisfied in that. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He said, when all of that is truly in your world and your soul is becoming healthier, your heart is becoming positive in the sense, he says, now look at all the benefits, the results that you're going to have. Very quickly, let's go through. First one is, he says, you're going to get direction. It said, he got me in passive righteousness. When my heart is connected to the Lord, he will give me direction, a spiritual roadmap of where the future is going. I will be in tune. Secondly, there's protection. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. See, when my soul is connected with God in a vital way, then that brings freedom even from some of life's greatest fears. And we all know how we can get caught up in fear. And I know if I'm in tune with God or not, when I'm letting this drive, I can't sleep throughout the night and I can't get it off my mind. Well, guess what? Fear has got a grip of me. Another thing he says, you have is security. This is a great word picture. Listen, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now think about that. Uh, prepare a table for me. I'm thinking table, calm, relax, relaxation, meal, all, and it's in the context of everyone else who's against me, around me. See, even in, in the context of what seems to be a barrage of attacks, God says, I prepare a table for you, even in the presence of your enemies. And when your soul is healthy, you can have that kind of security. Then there's care and healing. He says, you anoint my head with oil. We know oil often in the scripture, symbol of healing, the work of the Holy Spirit. God, your presence, the Holy Spirit anoints me. And you know what? That leads to gratitude. My cup, it just overflows. I told you about last time, this this girl in the midst of such misery that we've come to know. In in the midst of so much sickness and spending so much time of her young life in bed and written. And and all she does is encourage people with scripture. And and, and again, like I said, I never knew she even had these issues. Because she didn't let that become the focus. Her cup overflowed. And I was ashamed. Because I felt my cup wasn't overflowing. I wasn't meeting all the financial goals in my life. I felt like I was falling behind. You know, things where all I could do is whine. Gratitude comes from a soul who truly understands their identity in Christ, that connectedness with God. They have a healthy relationship. And the outgrowth of that is gratitude. And then there's a confident future. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. They know trouble's still coming. He has enemies, but he knows, no, no. Surely goodness 
and love will follow me. So let's get real practical as we wrap this up. Three things you got to do. You have to make an informed decision. You have to stare this one in the face and you have to say, you know, busyness and drivenness is so much a part of our life and this culture that if I'm going to get serious about having my heart in a tune and my God, I can't be swept along the current simply of this world and this culture that I've got to stop somewhere and get in touch with God and hear his truths. And so unless, Glenn, you make some intentional hard choices, even about just spending time reading your scriptures on the job site, just living differently, then, we're, then you might as well pack it up. You'll just continue along. Nothing will be any different from this point to one year down the road. The second thing I say is you, you, you just can't do this on your own. I can't do this. I need help. You need help. I don't care if it's a close friend, accountability partner, a small group. You know, someone's name might have came right to your mind as soon as I said you need help. But you need to have someone where you can sit down. I think we lack that so much in the church today, mentoring. It's not about someone being a professional, just someone who's been there, done that, sitting with someone else, and they just mentor each other. Map out what it looks like to help each other out. I have a a couple guys that I'm trying to line that up with in our church right now, just sitting down and growing together. In fact, I'm going to be embarrassed because I'm going to have to tell them after that first week of my goal, I zero. And the last thing is you need to start taking a step like right now. Don't, don't walk away and say, oh, it was okay. No, no. This week you need to say, what am I going to do? Am I going to sign up with a group? Am I going to call this individual? Am I going to tell a, make a plan and then tell someone so then uh, you know, they hold me a little bit accountable? You know, we drive on the deer foot. We hate the traffic. Well, say, hey, instead of me, and I'm the worst there again, instead of complaining, just take time to pray, be in God's presence, put on. T- I don't care what it is, but we've got to create those moments in the midst of chaos to carve out with God. And it could be as simple as sitting in the shower going, you know, I'm in the shower almost every day. That's a good time to pray for someone. Maybe it's intentionally lessening your schedule. We all got to do that. You know, we read the Bible like it's, an, it's something we just have to do an obligation, rather than seeing it as an invitation for God, the living God, to build a relationship with us. And so I'm going to leave you with this message, Matthew 11, 28, from the message. And it says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So many of us maybe even came to church and we're not not walking lightly. We're feeling overwhelmed and burdened with the weight of so much around us. And God says, this is not what I intended. This is not what I had in store. But we've got to do things. We've got to take steps. I have to take steps. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you again. Thank you for your incredible gifts that you have given us. The greatest gift is that I can have a relationship with you, Almighty God, my Creator, my Father in Heaven, through your Son, Jesus Christ. I, and yet, I live so often like that's not even a reality. I know it's there. I sing about it every Sunday, but God, I don't live it. 
I know I am not alone. I know that this is an ongoing issue for each and every one of us. And that's why I'm also so grateful for your patience and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness and all those aspects that just encourage me to keep moving forward. I stood here over 20-something years ago standing outside this door waiting on your call of ministry for my life. I would hope and pray 20-something years later I'm further ahead in my walk with you. And it hasn't stagnated or worse, I've walked backwards. And yet, even if it has... You welcome us back with open arms if we just make that commitment right now. That we say, God, it's sin to ignore you. It's sin to turn our backs on you. And to think that we can handle these things on our own. And Father, forgive me. And help me move forward. Help me find someone. Help me find a group. Help us encourage one another because there is nothing more important in this life. There is no more time that I can emphasize and put on than with regards to my soul's condition. Never mind dieting and physical fitness. All those things are good. But God, if I'm not doing the same intentionality with my soul, we're in trouble. So God, guide us. Lead us. Empower us. And use us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name. Amen.